Good to be with you this morning in this beautiful space. Um, Thank you, worship team. Uh, That was wonderful. Uh, So we just heard the creation texts read this morning, and more specifically, the texts that are often referred to as the dominion texts or the stewardship texts. And uh, the more I've studied Genesis, the more I've come to really respect and enjoy and love and appreciate the richness and complexity of those early texts. And we're just going to be scratching the surface today. But not everybody appreciates these texts. Uh, Years ago, I was teaching a course in Christian ethics, and we got to the part of the course where we began to talk about stewardship. And uh, there was a young woman in the class who became increasingly uncomfortable, and she said, I don't like the word stewardship, and I don't like this text. And I was a bit curious about that. And she had this sense that stewardship is really a term that we throw around um, that gives us license to abuse creation and the earth. Perhaps she had been influenced by a famous essay written by Lynn White Jr. titled The Historical Roots of the Ecological Crisis, published in the journal Science in 1967. And in this article, White uh, very famously blames the modern ecological crisis on the Genesis text in particular, saying that it fosters a notion of absolute dominion on the part of humans. Now, there's a lot wrong with White's argument, uh, logical problems, historical problems. I'm just going to focus on the problems that it has with the Genesis text itself. Uh, Genesis does not support the idea of absolute dominion, except maybe with reference to God, not to us. And it certainly doesn't support any kind of human agenda of exploiting the earth or its creatures or fellow human beings. In fact, Genesis actually anticipates and warns us about the possibility of misusing this God-given power. We heard about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we heard the warning of what would happen if they ate of it. And there's a sense in which, in Genesis 3, human beings aren't content to be the stewards. They want to be God themselves, and so they grasp after this. And when you do that, everything gets thrown off. Everything gets disoriented. And we really begin to treat everything else as objects for our control. So we're warned about this. In contrast, in Genesis chapter 1, God is king. God is king. We are stewards only. I love that scene in The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, when Gandalf comes to visit Denethor, the steward of Gondor. Now, I don't know if the scene's really close to the Tolkien text itself, but anyways, uh, I love the scene in the movie because he comes before him and Denethor uh, makes it known to Gandalf that he's aware that Gandalf is traveling with this ranger, right, from the north who's going to come and claim the throne. And he says, I will not give the throne of Gondor to another. Right? And Gandalf says back to him, um, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king. Steward, right, just really pressing that point home, right? Steward. And that's, that's the state that we're in. We're not the king. We are stewards only. In Genesis 1, God alone is king. God alone has dominion. Not only that, but in Genesis 2, our stewardship is depicted in terms of gardening. And isn't that interesting? We are stewards that garden. Garden involves tenderness and care, planning, foresight, intervention. Uh, It involves knowledge and it involves getting your hands dirty. 
Flowers are delicate. Weeds can be prickly. So lots of care is intended there. But the text actually presses further than this because the Hebrew words for describing the tilling and the keeping of the garden or tend and watch over in the New Living Translation are used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe priestly acts of tending and guarding and watching over the tabernacle in the book of Numbers. So this act of representing or stewardship is also an act of gardening, which is also a priestly act of cultivating creation so that it can flourish and participate in worshiping the creator whose artwork it is. So we are rulers in the sense of representatives. We are gardeners and we are priests of creation. I love that you quoted N.T. Wright this morning. I've got another N.T. Wright quote here. Wright says, when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell. And put humans into that construct as a way of both reflecting his own love into the world and drawing out the praise and glory from the world back to himself. As Paul says, and as Revelation puts it, we are to be rulers and priests, a royal priesthood. So what about this naming stuff in Genesis 2? We are really concerned today about the use of language and words and titles uh, and names for things, aren't we? Um, Because I think we have a sense in which naming is power. When we name something, we exert power over it. And I think this is true in the text. There is an inherent power given to the humans. And that power is okay so long as God is in the center. And we are using that power in a delegate sort of way. But when we usurp the center, when we want to be God instead of God, then that power becomes very dangerous because everything then gets used for our own ends rather than God himself being the only true end. I want to suggest, though, that naming is really important to who we are as humans and to our calling in this world. I want to just suggest an analogy uh, for naming, and the analogy I want to suggest is that of indwelling. I'll explain what I mean by that, but I think naming has to do with indwelling the earth. My kids are uh, homeschooled. Uh, My wife began to do that several years ago, uh, not because we don't support the public school system, so all you bachelor of ed people out there, don't worry. Uh, Initially because our oldest son had some health issues, missed about 40 days of school one year. So we began to homeschool, and my wife just fell in love with doing it, fell in love with the kind of philosophy of it and, and just what she was able to do. And the approach that she takes is one that really focuses on, on holism, on seeing everything connected. And it really involves helping uh, young kids pay attention to detail and complexity and wonder. So you might, instead of separating all your subjects, you might go outside and, and actually sketch a flower, right? So there's your art class. And you're noticing detail and complexity. And then you're going to go online and you're going to research about that flower and you're going to write a little story about it, you know, and correct the spelling as you go. And so everything kind of gets interrelated. And my kids uh, have a wonderful view of the world. I I was not brought up this way. And I'm, I'm learning from my kids to pay better attention of the world around me. If you were to send my kids out into the backyard they'd have a very different experience than me. You send me out to the backyard and ask me, Patrick, what did you see? 
I'd probably say something like, well, there's some green stuff on the ground. Uh, there are these green and brown things um, lining our, our garden, you know, with leaves on them. Uh, there's a bunch of feathered, chirping creatures in the air. I'm pretty sure they're called birds. Right? If you ask my kids to go out in the, gar- in the backyard, they would name the different types of plants. Right? They'd notice different types of grass. They could recognize um, probably 10 or 15 different birds by sight and by, um, uh, by call or by song. Uh, in other words, they indwell a much richer world than me when they go out there. And because of that, they're able to pay attention to the detail and the complexity. As I reflected about this, it struck me that that kind of learning can enable, if we're intentional about it, a less egocentric kind of life, right? When I go out in the backyard, it's all one big mass object. When my kids go into the backyard, it's a detailed, complex world of otherness that calls them to attend to it. I think that's really interesting. See, the world is not just one big object for us to manipulate and exploit and control. It's not just there for our own magisterial subjectivity. It is other, it is different, and it's complex, right? Look at this chapel. Imagine all the detail and attention and hours and probably some pain and blood even, right? Going into placing every tile, right? Every piece of glass, according to a purpose, to to draw our attention outside of ourselves to something bigger and greater. I think this has missional significance, this notion of indwelling. We held a conference here at Tyndale a few weeks ago um, called Into the Neighborhood. And one of the themes that came out in in this this conference was how is that we engage this world? We live in a post-Christian world, right? A world that is not Christendom anymore, you know, whether we like that or not, it just, there's, it's, it's a multicultural world, especially in a place like Toronto, it's multi-faith, uh, it's international, and so on. Um, and we just can't assume that people are going to wake up on a Sunday morning and, um, you know, say, you know, I, I really think I feel like going to church today, right? And so let's, let's investigate. We, we got to think about how we get out there. And uh, one of the themes was we need to pay attention to the world around us, to the details of the spaces we inhabit, right? Because we're going to be the presence of Christ there. Our neighborhoods, our families, our friendships, our places of work, and so forth. We heard from a guy named Preston Puteau, who keeps an apiary. Uh, He's a beekeeper. And he talks about how that detailed work of attending to bees and noticing how they live led him to thoughts about God, but also forced him to to sort of be still and quiet and to begin to look around at his own neighborhood, meet his neighbors, get a sense for who they are, uh, where he's called to be and serve. He talked about boredom, how this notion of being missional might involve boredom, and that really struck me. I thought, hmm, might boredom be a spiritual discipline? Right? We live in a fast-paced world. There are a lot of things that are worth doing that aren't easy, that don't come quick. Things we may not even connect with it. I was meeting with my wife's 92-year-old grandfather. Uh, we've become close over the years. And uh, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He used to teach English literature and ran a, um, 
um, and did a bunch of things, was a pastor. And uh, we've often sat and chatted, and recently I've begun to notice that uh, he, he tells stories over and over and over again. It's not always easy to sit and hear the same story over and over again. But actually, I won't take credit for this, my wife actually pointed this out to me, if you listen carefully, every time he tells that same story that you've heard 15 times today, no, no it's not quite like that, uh, he tells it in a slightly different way and he adds different significance to it in light of his reflection back on life. Do we have that kind of patience for people? Perhaps we don't because we, we can't put up with boredom. Right? We're always entertaining ourselves. So this notion of indwelling, I think, is, is missionally significant. But what does all this have to do with you? as a staff worker or a professor or a student here at Tyndale. Well, I want to suggest that we become better stewards and priests and gardeners of God's creation when we learn to indwell the world around us, which happens as we pay attention to detail and complexity and beauty and wonder and awe and some things that are boring, that take time and patience You are here to discover things, to classify things, to identify causal relationships between things, interconnections, how the parts and the wholes fit together. And all of this is basic, not only to your education, but to your calling as a human being made in God's image, sent forth into the world to help it flourish. Some of this stuff can be mundane, and we may not realize just how formative it can be parsing verbs in Greek and Hebrew or Latin, right? Or English for that matter. Some of you here are learning English as a second language, maybe. Doing conceptual analysis and philosophy and learning about logical fallacies and formal reasoning. Ooh. Playing scales and music. Going over that same song over and over and over and over again. Learning about the intricacy and complexity of DNA and the genetic code in biology. Counselors spending countless hours with clients and spending time in supervision and maybe having to learn a few things about yourself you don't like, about skills you need to develop or body language you need to take care of. Business, attention to detail matters, doesn't it? In finance and accounting, How about marketing and creativity, right? And how both of those things need to be thought in relation to who God is and and what true human flourishing is about. Those humanities courses that may not interest you, but you have to take, right, to get a BA. You're learning about other humans that you may not care about, other cultures that you have no interest in. You may may be learning about people groups that make you uncomfortable, In the social sciences, you're learning to think critically and constructively about how to reflect on and make use of qualitative and quantitative data in research, right? And it requires wisdom to know what to do with that, and it requires knowledge of God to know how to put it all together and to help this world flourish according to his heart and intentions. And all of you writing papers, right? How can that lead to anything good? 
All of these things are opportunities for you to cultivate some virtues that change your character and become lifelong that you can apply to other aspects of life. A second thing I think you're here to do is to put all of this in perspective according to who God is and who we are. He is God, we are not. This is his world. We are the servants within here. In Genesis 1 and 2, we as humans are given a very unique role to play. And it's important to cultivate both a sense of awe and wonder about this role. It really is a high, high calling. And yet also a sense of deep responsibility about the significance and seriousness of that calling. We're reminded that our callings, both our future vocations that you're studying for, but also your calling right here and now in this place amongst your community is to love God first and foremost and to seek his kingdom and to love others that he's put into your life. Are you paying attention? Are you aware? Do you indwell the spaces you move in or are you just passing by? Are you indwelling Tyndale as a community? Are you just passing through on way to a degree? Don't lose the opportunity and it takes intentionality and conscientiousness to do this. It's not, it's not like you know, learning to play scales on a piano automatically makes me a good person. But in being reflective and attending to those skills, right, and the kinds of virtues they're cultivating in us, we can begin to understand how this impacts the rest of our lives. I think that's why when we come to church, to chapel, we don't sort of take everything else that we're learning and just sort of forget about it so that this is a little bit of escapism, right? It's actually taking all things up and bringing them to God. So I hope that you don't just sort of leave class behind when you come to chapel. You bring it with you. you know, this issue we're learning about, it's disturbing. God, what am I to do with this, right? Or wow, I was blown away today. Thank you. Praise you, Lord. Or I am overcome with the need of this world. How, Lord, are you training me to address it? I can't do it. How can I be a kingdom seed planter so that you can do it? One of my very best friends uh, is a business person. He has been a CEO of, of several large uh, corporations. He's particularly gifted in coming into a company that's struggling uh, and turning it around and making it profitable. I remember reading a news release about him once when he had joined a company. And he had, he had turned around, they were, they were losing money, and he turned it around so that they were making something like a 10 or 20% profit or something like that. Just amazing gifts. He was an engineer, a very gifted uh, thinker, went on to do an MBA, and just was a president by the time he was 39, and just kind of went from there. Interestingly, he does not see his primary calling to be a business person, right? That's the context of his calling. He sees his primary calling as being a steward, but also a reconciler. When he turns a company around, he said to me that one of the big things that he realizes is that he's got to address the toxicity in workplaces. So his, his calling as a Christian makes him a reconciler and a peacemaker, one who takes a struggling situation and helps it to heal and to flourish. And he knows everybody by name, even the people in the warehouse, because he's there not just to make money or, or pursue a bottom line, but to be a priest, a steward, a gardener, 
a representative of the king. I want to close, I want to close with a benediction over you. And before doing that, just ask you to pause for just a second and ask you, where has God placed you right now? What are the details? What are the opportunities? What are the struggles? When we come to God, we don't just take our life and put all that stuff aside so that we sort of put our best person in front of God. We bring all the messiness to him, all the joy, all the delight, all the difficulty. And we ask, Lord, where are you in the midst of all this? Can we ask him to open our eyes so that we see him at work every day in all we do and join with him in his working? Would you stand with me as we close with this benediction? In Manitoba, my wife and I joined the Evangelical Covenant Church, and we were part of a church plant there, and uh, I got to know their book of liturgy, and so I want to close with um, one of the benedictions from that book, the Covenant Book of Worship. Would you bow your heads and hear these words spoken over you? Go forth now into the world where apathy and half-heartedness, delusion and anxiety are dominant. Move the world a little letting the world know that the church lives and breathes in the lives of us. In the name of God, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer, the Lord be with you. Amen. Go forth in peace.